Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Dozens of doulas in Ontario were allegedly duped. Where is Canada's national food program? COVID-19 lockdowns hit kids hard. A local boy has made the history books at the Junos, teaching English using ukuleles. And Canada needs more cybersecurity workers. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. This is just a mind blowing story. 24-year-old woman in Brantford is facing more than 30 charges for fraudulently seeking the services of dozens of registered doulas across the province. Doulas don't deliver babies, but they're trained professionals. They help uh, people before, during, and after childbirth. And so Brantford police back on Monday arrested Caitlin Braun, and have charged her with criminal harassment, fraud, and sexual assault. And I should mention that none of the allegations have been tested or proven in court, but a number of doulas in this province uh, feel that they've been duped. And now we're going to speak with one of them who was involved in this case. Amy Silva is her name. She's been a doula for about five years in the London area and is, as I mentioned, a victim in this uh, really bizarre story. Amy, good morning. Welcome to the show. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Thank you. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. How did you get caught up in all this? Um, <laughs> I received a text message um, from Caitlin asking if I provided law services. She had found me on Instagram. Um, we had a conversation through text just to say, yes, I do. And then, um, not unusual, I set up a like a Zoom um, consult call. So like a virtual call so that we could see each other, you know, face to face without being in person to talk about her loss and what she was going through. And did you ever physically meet her face to face as well? I did. Um, she was uh, in London. She came here. Um, I had been told the story that she gave me was that she was in her final year of the social work program at King's College here at uh, Western University. She said that she lived, you know, um, on campus with roommates. So she had rented um, an Airbnb so that when she was in labor, she wasn't laboring in front of other students, which would make perfect sense. Mm -hmm. How long did you assist the accused and what was she like to deal with? I spent from Wednesday, February 15th to Sunday, February 19th, supporting her, um, virtually like through text message um, and I was in person with her Thursday evening through to Friday morning. She seemed to be in labor. There was nothing that really seemed off about the way that she was having contractions. I've given birth to three children myself. Um, I've seen countless other people give birth in labor so I know what it looks like, what it sounds like and there were no kind of red flags in that regards at all. So when did you figure out that something was amiss? So I um, I have a full-time job, so I don't do just doula work. So I ended up meeting a backup doula, and the backup doula was in person with her over the weekend on and off. Um, and she just kind of, through their conversations in person, started to feel that there might have been some red flags. Um, through one of their exchanges. So she had remembered seeing something on a doula Facebook group from the fall. So she went back and actually 
um, found a post from October and November from another London doula who had dealt with her then and saw that it was her name. So she sent uh, me the screenshot and we were just kind of mind blown, shocked that somebody would do this and that it was obviously continuing from that point when they had posted. Um, so it was, there wasn't really a confrontation. It was kind of like, do you feel safe? Like, do you want to have a, a confrontation with her? Because my thinking is like, just get out, just protect yourself. Um, and ultimately that's what she did. And she never contacted us again after that. It was kind of like, she knew that we had figured it out and she just didn't care and just moved on to the next person almost immediately. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Amy Silva, one of uh, dozens of registered doulas from across Ontario who's been duped by this woman in Brantford who now faces a variety of charges, including criminal harassment, sexual assaults, fraud. Amy, what impact has this had on you, both financially and mentally? Um, So I personally don't charge for uh, law support. So obviously, I didn't get paid for four days of um, providing service to somebody um, emotionally and mentally. It's, it's a lot, you know, there's, for me, there's a lot of, of guilt in bringing a backup doula into the situation and having that person um, impacted. So it's not just the trauma that I feel for myself in the situation. It's feeling that for, for other people. Um, She had a friend there with her who I later found out, um, just a couple days ago, I had assumed the whole time that she had known and was in on the scam and found out that um, she actually had no idea. And Caitlin has actually now accused her of sexually assaulting her. So the story and the victims are just growing and it's just getting worse and worse with every every person that we find. What do you think was her motivation? Why Why was she doing this? And that honestly is the million dollar question that you know, we've all been asking that everyone's asking us. I mean, we could we could say that it's a mental health issue. Obviously, there's probably some kind of mental health aspect. Um, it seems like there's a lot of attention seeking with it as well. I know um, a lot of this has gone um, viral on TikTok. I mean, the first initial video, thinking that nobody would really see it because it was a seven minute video, but it got a lot of attention and then Um, Some of the other doulas shared their stories and um, Caitlin actually went and created two new TikTok accounts because I had blocked her on all social media and she was going in my videos and actually liking the comments, talking about the trauma that she's caused all of us. So it's, it's definitely an attention thing, I think, as well. Wow, it is a really bizarre and sensational case. Amy, uh, thank you for sharing your story with us, and uh, good luck with this. This is, uh, I'm sure, a very uh, tough thing to deal with. Thank you, it is, yes. Amy Silva is uh, a doula for five uh, years in London, uh, one of the victims in this case, one of dozens of victims, allegedly there's about 50 or so, uh, doulas that have joined this Facebook group to talk about uh, the, the allegations against this individual. And again, none of these allegations have been tested or proven in court, but certainly it is a story. And it's not only local, but it's uh, it's so uh, wild that we'll be following it uh, for the next, who knows, several weeks or months, however long this takes to come to a conclusion. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. I learned this yesterday. I mean, you learn something new every day. And this one to me was... 
a, a bit of a surprise because of all the G7 countries, of those seven countries that make the G7, Canada is the only one without a national food program. The only one. And with food prices reaching new highs over the last, what, couple of years now, you know, you're feeling the pinch, I'm feeling the pinch, many students are suffering as a result. There is some good news, though. There are some amazing organizations in this city that fundraise and use those funds, use that money to feed children in our schools. There are a lot of kids who are going to school on an empty stomach or are given just a small amount of food to get through the day, and that is extremely difficult to do. Well, one of those amazing organizations in this community is the Bulldogs Foundation. And Peggy Chapman is the executive director of the Bulldogs Foundation and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Peggy, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Well, as you know, food prices are sky high. They've been that way for the last year and a bit, two years. Programs like the Bulldogs Foundation are absolutely essential because you're feeding kids in schools. How does the program work and how many schools are benefiting? So um, to this point, I'm proud to say we're now up to 21 schools. And that is really the threshold for what we call um, the schools facing equitable challenges. So we are feeding those schools in our community and it works. Now we're very proud because we were able to work through COVID with our um, program. So we have a partnership with Longos and they deliver food. So um, the schools now, each school, we figure out um, the boards help us do this. We let the boards decide which schools and how many students. Um, and, and once you're in a school, the, the, the school gets, every kid in the school gets the program. But um, they get uh, an account with Longos, and one person in the school goes on, orders the food, and it's delivered whenever they say they need it. And that's how um, that goes. So um, it's, it's really um, safe. It's really efficient, um, and we also, um, in, in my role, I get to see what is being ordered to ensure that it's nutritious food as well. So that's how the Bulldogs program works. How many, you mentioned 21 schools, how many kids are impacted? We're in we're um, the thousands, I guess. Yes, it, you know, it's funny, as you're going through COVID, how many kids going back and forth? So uh, bookkeeping on that is sort of all over. So we generally say it's between six and 10,000 students. Wow. What, what's the impact? I mean, what you must see kids, uh, you know, in school, you know, hear from teachers, hear from people in the school boards, and uh, obviously they're saying thank you, but what's the impact that this program has? Well, I, just recently I did do a tour of um, schools and the programs to sort of get a hands-on um, thing on that because we were heading into our um, last home game on Sunday. Rick was our found, annual foundation game where we thank our corporate partners and everybody. And we had some students that participate in the program as well as the school boards. And it's the school board folks that um, – uh, are, are challenged with dealing with the equitable schools on all levels. And there were tears in their eyes and they were thanking us because the numbers have increased. I think we all can imagine that um, Hamilton already had a problem with um, food equality for sub-students, but with the cost of food in, increasing, it's really challenging to be able to get everybody. So they're seeing more students participate. Now, of course, every kid has access in a school that has a Bulldogs uh, nutrition program, but they are seeing more. So I can tell you we're in March now, and I am uh, having to find new ways to fundraise to help get us through till June because – 
what we would normally have as a balance for some schools. They're obviously going through it because the need's higher, but the cost of food is so much higher. There's a lot of ways that the community can give as well. There's uh, raffles, 50-50 draws, uh, silent auctions, live auctions, a number of ways that uh, the team, the Hamilton Bulldogs, is helping the Bulldogs Foundation. And you can also go online as well and contribute financially, bulldogsfoundation.com. Um, how else can people help in this regard? So, yeah, I mean, uh, what's great, Rick, is that, yes, we have our Bulldogs games with 50-50s. You can certainly go online. You can um, purchase items. Um, but we also partner with um, the Hamilton Tiger Cats. Well, like I like to say in Hamilton, in Hamilton, cats and dogs get along. We also do the Forge <laughs> games for 50-50s. So you'll see me at all, of, and we do the Rock games. So you'll see me at all of these games managing the 50-50s. Um, to do that, we also have a great program, Adopt a School, where corporate partners um, donate and help um, fund the, the programs in the schools and also give tickets to students. There's one thing I also want to say with the, the unfortunate and uh, sad news of us having to leave town for a bit. Mr. Andelauer has committed to the school boards that we will continue our Hamilton program, nutrition program in the schools. We aren't going to make any cuts. We're going to continue funding those. So even though we're playing in Brantford and raising money in Brantford, we will be also, you know, keeping, making sure that we take care of our kids here. Do you currently help schools in Brantford or is that going to be in addition to what you guys are already doing? So we're just having those conversations, Rick. We still have to see if in Brantford nutrition programs are the the main focus for youth and is that what they need? Do they already have programs? As you mentioned, you know, we're praying and hoping local Halton um, Minister Karina Gould has been um, tasked by the Prime Minister to look into a national nutritional program, school nutrition program. So w- imagine if that comes through, I can start funding maybe some other things. So, yeah, we're, we are going to be, um, you know, talking to Brantford about what their needs are, but it may, we don't know if that's going to be a nutrition program yet or not. In Hamilton, it certainly is because that's what the principals have told us um, for a, over a decade. Last one for you, and uh, this is just about how the team is doing. You know, fifth place in the Eastern Conference. I know the, the game didn't turn out well last night, but this team has been playing well. Playoff hockey's at hand. It's got to be exciting to be around the team. Oh, it is so exciting because it's unexpected. There's one thing of saying when you're winning all season and, you know, you're in playoffs, but it's another when you start the season, not not that you don't want to, but that that's not the expectation. Coach would always say our focus is to build a new team. Well, this new team somehow really likes to play the hardest teams in the league and uh, does pretty well at those ones. So, yeah, it's very exciting. We still have um, – I, I do encourage fans to come out once we know the schedule to our last playoff games at First Ontario Centre. Uh, we do know this. It'll be against the Peterborough Peets. We don't know whether the Bulldogs will have home ice advantage or where uh, Peterborough will. That uh, remains to be seen mm-hmm. with uh, a handful of games left to play. Uh, it's going to be exciting to watch. Peggy, thanks for the time today. Best of luck with the Bulldogs Foundation going forward. Thank you, Rick. That's Peggy Chapman, Executive Director of the Bulldogs Foundation. They do some amazing work in the community, raising funds that go to in-school breakfast programs to get uh, food into the bellies of many of our kids who are struggling due to high food prices. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Last weekend, we hit the three-year mark of the COVID-19 pandemic when it was officially classified as a global pandemic by the World Health Organization. And uh, we know that we, we were taxed, especially in the early days of the pandemic, lockdowns, restrictions, 
masking, uh, vaccine mandates. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And there's now a new study from researchers at the University of Calgary that was published in Lancet Psychiatry that shows the children were among the most negatively impacted by COVID-19 lockdowns. And we saw it in our schools, right? Remote learning, it was a, a chore to say the least. That's a, that's a massive understatement. But the, the findings of this study is in stark contrast to another study that was published in the Vertical Medical Journal that suggested that eh, the pandemic had a minimal impact on our, on our mental health. Nicole Racine is the study co-author of the Calgary study and a clinical psychologist and assistant professor in the School of Psychology at the University of Ottawa and joins us now. Nicole, good morning. How are you today? Good morning. I'm well, thank you. What data did you look at to support the results that you found? Yeah, so we did uh, a pooling of studies that were conducted all over the world uh, from 18 different countries, 42 studies. And we looked at emergency department visits for uh, suicide attempts and suicidal ideation among children and youth. And what we actually found was around the world, those numbers actually went up. Uh, and so even though less people went to the emergency department, there was a 32% reduction in pediatric emergency department visits for any health-related reason. Uh, for suicide attempts, it actually went up by 22%. And so really what our study shows is uh, that there was an increase in mental distress among children and youth, and that we see that reflected in them showing up at the eMERGE department. Was there a particular age group among youth that you saw a bigger spike than others? Yeah, so I know in this study in particular, we were looking uh, from zero uh, ages 0 to 19, and in many other studies, we've demonstrated that actually uh, in older youth and um, especially among girls were, are areas where we've seen uh, particular concern. And it's not hard to believe that kids, you know, their, their brain is not as developed, certainly in the younger age, is not as developed as an adult. So they're going to look at lockdowns and changes, disruptions to their, uh, their usual daily life very differently than what an adult or even a teenager is going to think. For sure. And I think I think what we've really noted here, and we've seen this uh, not just in Canada, but in other locations, is that child and youth mental health was under-prioritized and underfunded before the pandemic. And so layer on top of that, uh, so many changes, as you mentioned, lockdowns, and most kids actually access their mental health support in schools. And so uh, some of that was taken away for many kids. And what this resulted in was people feeling like one of the only options they had and places that they could go to when things got really severe was actually the emergency department. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Nicole Racine, study co-author, clinical psychologist, and assistant professor in the School of Psychology at the University of Ottawa. We're talking about a study that she was a part of, co-authored, um, with researchers at the University of Calgary that shows that kids were among the most negatively impacted by COVID-19 lockdowns. And I understand that you and your colleagues um, contacted the authors of the BMJ study to say, hey, what gives? Yeah, we, we contact, we wrote a response uh, to their paper because our concern was the headlines for that paper were COVID-19 had minimal impact on mental health, uh, you know, and really pointed towards a resilience story, which, of course, I think we all want to hear. 
But the issue was, is this headline didn't resonate with people because people had experienced uh, some challenges. And what we said is you actually have to dig deeper. And when you dig deeper and you look at specific subgroups who were more vulnerable, like women, like children and adolescents, we actually did see elevations. And it's important to characterize that. Nicole, we have about a minute. As a clinical psychologist, three years into this pandemic now, how are kids doing? What are you seeing? What are you hearing? Yeah, so our data that we included in this study went up to July of 2021, and certainly we're going to continue to follow the situation and uh, see what is happening. I think as we return to somewhat uh, more normal times, uh, you know, we hope that things are improving and things are getting better uh, at the same time, I think we still uh, we need to have more resources for child and youth mental health. These need to be accessible. They need to be present where kids are in schools. We also need to focus on prevention. And by that, I mean having universal programs that teach kids about strategies related to mental health and Uh, adequate supports for families so they can be sure to support their kids. Those are all great ideas. Nicole, thank you for your time today. Thanks for sharing the details of this study. You're most welcome. Have a great day. You too. That's Nicole Racine from the University of Ottawa. Again, the study found a 22% increase in the number of children and adolescents going to ERs for suicide attempts and an 8% spike in visits for suicide ideation during the pandemic. And that was just basically the first couple of years of the COVID-19 pandemic. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Really cool story that we're going to bring you right now. And it's about a couple of teachers from our area who are in Ecuador this week, three years after COVID-19 derailed their initial trip to the South American country. But it's not really a vacation from the rigors of the daily life. Our guests today are visiting Ecuador to teach at an English as a second language school using music and in particular ukuleles. Jean-Vierre Brochette is an early childhood educator with the Grand Erie District School Board. Catherine Gorecki is retired French immersion teacher at the board. And Josh Beatham is originally from St. George in Brant County, and he and his wife have founded the St. George School in Ecuador. So let's welcome you all three to the show. How are you doing today? Very good. How about you? Fantastic. Thanks for joining us today. Um, Jean-Vierre, maybe we'll start with you. Uh, You finally made it to Ecuador. How does it feel? It's uh, it's quite an over, overwhelming feeling. Uh, there was actually tears shed at the airport when we landed. <laughs> um, yeah, after three years, uh, because it was a, a whole year and a half in planning originally before COVID, and it got shut down like the day we were leaving back in 2020. So being here is uh, a dream come true uh, to be able to play, uh, put our plan in action and be able to help Josh because that was the original idea. Uh, ukuleles are very hard to find here or to acquire. So when we first met, uh, he told me that that would be a great opportunity for the kids to be able to learn the language, language, the English language, uh, forgive me, uh, that he was teaching, but with music, uh, it would be even beneficial. Uh, Catherine, we'll go next to you. Your initial flight was planned for March 13th, 2020. And then we all know that month, uh, the, the world basically changed because of the pandemic. Was it worth the wait? Oh, absolutely. This is uh, an incredible experience. And I really owe it all to Gen- Genevieve for having the, the idea to come and uh, for asking me to come along with her. 
Um, but yeah, absolutely. Getting the suitcases out and looking at our things we had already packed last time was kind of, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> it was exciting, but also kind of we had uh, sadness around it. But then, uh, yeah, being here is amazing. I can believe it. Let, let's go to Jean-Viev and then we'll uh, we'll uh, get Josh into the conversation here. Jean-Viev, how are you teaching students in Ecuador using ukuleles and music? Um, Catherine and I are both uh, ukulele instructor in Canada. We both teach, uh, well, Kath Catherine did teach ukulele in school. And when I met her, I joined her to do the ukulele clubs. So we're teaching the same way we teach our kids at home. Um, we brought uh, some um, um, educational material that was provided by James Hill, who is a very uh, famous ukulele player in Canada. And we trained with him. So we actually partnered with him and he gave us some free materials to bring along and some uh, digital material so we can pass it along to Josh so that when we're done here, he can continue uh, the journey. So. We're not doing anything different, really, because it's an English immersion school. So we're just teaching, uh, instead of in French, we're teaching in English, just exactly the same way we teach in Canada with the ukuleles here. We brought 20 ukuleles with us uh, this time around. Wow, that must have been some tricky packing. A little bit. The music store in Brentford helped us quite a bit with that. <laughs> Brentford Music Center packed them up for us, and they've been sitting for... Three years in the boxes, we were a little worried about what they would be, what condition they would be in when we pulled them out, but they were perfect. So it was just really, we were very worried about the boxes getting onto the right planes because we had a stop off in Bogota and then we uh, arrived in Quito. And so that was when Genevieve shed her, her tears of relief when we saw those boxes come off the plane. <laughs> I believe it. Our guests on Good Morning Hamilton are Jean-Vie Everchette, early childhood educator with the Grand Erie District School Board, Catherine Gorecki, a retired French immersion teacher at the board, and Josh Beatham is originally from St. George in Brand County. He and his wife have founded the St. George School in Ecuador. Let's bring in Josh into the equation here. You founded this school in 2012. Um, how have the students responded to this teaching of music uh, and, and learning the language? They're having a great time. This is something here in Ecuador that is not readily available. A lot of these students wouldn't have, certainly never sang in public if they don't go to a church. They, would have, they don't have music class here in elementary school, in high school. Um, so they've, a lot of them will have never touched an instrument before. Uh, we live in a, Banos is a touristic town about, about 20,000 people, but even in a town of this size, they wouldn't, there isn't a music school. There isn't a place to buy musical instruments. Um, so the kids here, it's about an hour away if they were to go to a music school and a lot of families can't afford the time or the bus fare to travel that far. So this is a really unique experience for our kids and I can see in their eyes and also in how they're adapting to it, that this is something that they're really going to take to heart and it's going to stay with them for a long time. I will bet, uh, Jean-Vier will end it with you. Do you plan to make this an annual trip? Maybe not annually. I think that my husband's going to say no to that. But, <laughs> um, but no, uh, one reason is that three years ago when we planned to come, the trip was actually very affordable uh, with Air Canada, had direct flight. But with the pandemic, uh, everything, everything went up in price. So our flight to come here this time was almost 
twice plus half, like two and a half what it costed back then. <laughs> so we are thinking, me and Catherine, maybe every other year and bring maybe more ukuleles along. And just a shout out uh, while I can, if anybody of your listeners uh, travel to Banyos, if they could bring a couple ukuleles with them and drop them off, that would be very um, a good opportunity to add that to their collection. Absolutely. Jean-Viev, Catherine, Josh, thanks for your time today. Congratulations on making this happen finally and uh, have fun down there. Thank, Thank you, you so much. What a wonderful initiative. Jean-Vier Rochette is an early childhood educator with the Grand Erie District School Board. Catherine Garecki, a retired French immersion teacher. And Josh Beatham, originally from St. George in Brant County, moved down to Ecuador and in 2012 founded this school in which he named St. George and has invited Jean-Vier and Catherine down. It did it three years ago. Obviously, the pandemic got in the way, but they were finally able to go down and are teaching kids English through music using Using ukuleles. It's a really interesting scenario. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, there's a couple local bands that are celebrating after this week's Juno Awards. We had Hamilton's Arkells winning Group of the Year, and Burlington's Walk Off the Earth not only won a Juno, but also made history in the process. The multi-platinum indie pop band, along with Romeo Eats from the food discovery show Romeo Eats, received the Juno <laughs> Award for for Children's Album of the Year. Johnny Luminati, Sarah Blackwood, and Romeo Eats with us here on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, how are you? Buenos dias, how are you? <laughs> Hi. We're, we're fantastic. Johnny, we'll start with you. This Juno is uh, for your debut album, Romeo Eats Volume 2, and the history books are being rewritten here because it makes five-year-old Romeo the youngest award winner in Juno history. How cool is that? It's a very cool achievement. Romeo is absolutely ecstatic about it, and we're obviously all, all pretty stoked about it as well. It was fun, Sarah, fun to take that home. Sarah, when you heard that you guys had won, what was going through your mind? Uh, it was funny, actually, because we're actually in Costa Rica right now. We were on a boat, and we were streaming it live, and the stream paused right as the award was being announced. <laughs> <laughs> And then we started getting, I saw text messages coming in saying, congratulations, congratulations. So I turned to Johnny, and I was like, we won. I guess we won. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. So we were we were very happy. We got to we got to celebrate on a boat in the middle of the ocean and in like nice sunny warm weather. And it was uh, yeah. It's just it's always nice to be recognized for the for the hard work that you're putting in. You know to to build your craft and to take those steps to make it a bigger and better thing. You know. <laughs> do, do you get the sense that Romeo realizes what he's achieved as well? Oh, Romeo realized, Romeo was, we went to the Junos last year because he was nominated last year as well. And from since that award show, he hasn't stopped talking about when the next one is going to be. <laughs> so he was so excited to be nominated and then, uh, you know, slightly disappointed that we didn't get to go to the actual show this year, but but he, he's been talking about it all year. <laughs> well, let's ask How Romeo. Feel, Rome? uh, How do you feel, buddy? Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure he does. What are you wait? What are you waiting for? What are we waiting for in the mail now? A trophy, <laughs> <laughs> a nice shiny one. I, I would ask Romeo, what is your favorite song on this album? Mine is the Kiwi song. What's your favorite song? The Sushi song. 
Oh yeah, okay, that's a good one. I like you know the Fushi song. He said <laughs> I, the broccoli <laughs> song's catchy. Yeah, whether it's mangoes, mushrooms, tomatoes, you guys did a phenomenal job oh, on this album. Do, do you, Johnny and Sarah, do you have favorite songs on this album? Um, yeah, the the song uh, featuring Miles Ehrlich, uh, my nephew. Um, I believe it's it's mango, right? Um, Mango song. M- Mango song, yeah. Is uh, is a banger, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, I think my favorite is probably the Mushroom song, but th- my favorite thing about these albums is we decided to do every song in a different genre, mm-hmm. which was really fun to do in the studio. And I'm a sucker for like Motown and dancey music. And I also love it when there's a little bit of adult content in the song that you may or may not notice. <laughs> so singing it and... Uh, and listening back to it is is a fun one for sure. Yeah, you guys did a phenomenal job on this. Um, Johnny Luminati, Sarah Blackwood, Romeo Eats joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. We're talking about their historic Juno Award winner uh, win for uh, album a children's album of the year at the Junos this past week. The uh, album and the victory made Romeo Eats the youngest ever Juno Award winner. Johnny, this is Walk Off the Earth's second Juno. You won Group of the Year back in 2016. How does this one compare to that one? Um, well, I mean, there obviously there's the the Romeo component, and that and that's really cool. But um, I mean, they're both exciting. I mean, we were there for the Group of the Year, and that was a very exciting uh, win for us because uh, that meant a lot to us. But they're they're both cool in their own ways. They're, Sarah, this album, of course, tied to Romeo Eats, this educational show that teaches viewers about cool and tasty food and and trying something new. How's the show going? The show's going great. Um, We wanted to, you know, being parents of three children, we basically had had enough of the background sounds of what the kids were watching on YouTube. (laughs) And, you know, Romeo has a real passion for food and for music and it started to really show when we were doing live streams with him eating different kinds of foods and parents were feeling inspired to get their kids to try new foods and even try the new foods themselves. So we were like, we could probably make something out of this, something that parents will enjoy either watching or just having as background sound as their kids are watching and it's educational. And and then obviously being musicians, we had to put the albums along with it and make a song for each episode. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's been a really cool journey and we love to create all different kinds of things. We've made short films before, music, music videos. It's just kind of another branch to the tree that we're that we're growing over here and walk off the earth world. <laughs> Johnny, what's next for Walk Off the Earth? Um, we have a crazy schedule coming up. Obviously, we have a big show, a big hometown Toronto show this year at the Bud Stage on June 3rd. Um, that we're really excited about. Um, but we also have a, a new album coming out this year. We have a, a new single that just dropped called My Stupid Heart that is currently um, in the top 40 in the United States and in Canada on radio. So we're excited about that. Um, we have, you know, there's so much, there's so many, um, like Sarah was saying, branches to what we're doing right now. We have a cartoon coming out. We have so many things. But mainly uh, for our list, the, for your listeners right now, this Toronto show is going to be. Um, a thing to remember it's last year we we had such a magical night and we're gonna replicate that and if not make it better this year so uh june 3rd in toronto is going to be the place to be yeah the budweiser stage is going to be rocking that day for sure last question for you guys and and romeo can chime in on this as too where is this juno going to be stationed in your home (laughs) where's the juno going to go romeo put it 
in my room. <laughs> <laughs> that is the right answer. Uh, Johnny, Sarah, Romeo, thanks for the time today. Congratulations and best of luck going forward with uh, the album and the songs and the tour coming up. Uh, really appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks so much. And we appreciate your support as well on, on all of the songs. You guys, thanks so much to to y'all and to the fans and just to everybody who supports us and allows us to keep doing what we're doing. We love you guys so much. Gracias. Great, uh, great time. Great historic events that Romeo and his uh, parents achieved. Uh, for more on the tour, by the way, you can go online, tour.walkoffthearth.com. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The cost of cyber crime around the world has nearly tripled in the last six years alone. It rings in at roughly $6 billion a year. And to make matters worse, there is apparently a shortage of skilled workers in the cybersecurity sector here in Canada. And unless that's addressed, this could result in an increase in ransomware attacks. We've seen a bunch of them already. We're going to see a lot more of them, I would suspect, in the years to come. Carmi Levy is a technology expert and journalist and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Carmi, good morning. Welcome back to the show. Great to be here with you, Rick. Thanks for having me. We obviously need more trained cybersecurity professionals in this country. Any guess on what this shortage looks like? Uh, yeah, the numbers are big and the numbers are frightening. There are about 124,000 people in the country who are, can be identified as cybersecurity professionals. That, you know, Their job is to protect, protect systems and data. That's what they do. Um, but there's an estimate that there are about 25,000 jobs on top of that that are going short, basically meaning one in six jobs in cybersecurity cannot be filled, which of all of the IT jobs, and I've been following the IT sort of talent landscape for years as part of what I do, um, and IT has had shortages all along as well. It's just hard to find technology workers. As a result, they can negotiate higher salaries. That's just the nature of the business. But of the, of the entire IT space, it's cybersecurity where the gap is the biggest, and it's not getting smaller. It's getting bigger over time, which means we're losing the fight. This is a field in which employees obviously need strong STEM skills. Is our government, is our school system doing enough to get more students interested in doing this? No, we're not. Uh, you know, we're not partnering between government and academia and business to ensure that the right curriculum uh, plan is in place, both at, you know, at, at the elementary and high school levels where kids are first getting their interest in science, technology, engineering and math. And then in post-secondary, where they're going to take that and specialize and prepare for their career. Uh, we're also not ensuring that we have enough co-op programs so that as students are working their way through post-secondary programs, they have a chance to work with businesses that are experiencing this live day after day. That's especially crucial in IT, particularly in cybersecurity, because it evolves so quickly that in many cases, the things that you encounter out in the real world as you get into your job, you never learned about in school. The threat landscape is changing so quickly. So you sort of need to have that, 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 that sense of partnership in place right from the get-go so that A, kids are interested in pursuing that career path, and then they have the tools that they need to roll with the punches to sort of recognize that you're not just going to train and then go spend 30 years in a job. You're going to be get, you're going to you're going to educate yourself to have certain skills, and then you're going to have to adapt the entire your entire career going forward. That's the nature of of a cybersecurity professional career path, 
And unfortunately, we're not preparing kids today for that. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Carmi Levy, technology expert and journalist. We're talking about a big-time shortage in cybersecurity professionals in this country. And it seems like it's only going to get worse unless we get more and more people interested in this field. Are there other countries that are doing it better? Yeah, the United States. So, I mean, and, which is problematic for Canada because they, of course, our biggest trading partner, biggest border, they're right next door. And so for a cybersecurity in Canada, a professional in Canada, looking at sort of, okay, you know, where, where am I going to get a really great job? They're paying a lot more in the U.S. They're offering the kinds of benefits that Silicon Valley recognized keeps talent. Uh, but Canadian companies have not kept pace. And Canadian governments have not kept pace providing the kinds of programs that would allow Canadian companies to compete globally. So, you know, as strong as Canada's tech sector is, the U.S. is, is better, and they recognize that talent acquisition and retention in the cybersecurity space is absolutely crucial for a strong economy, for a safe economy, and they're simply doing it better than we are. And because they're so close, well, Canadian professionals are like, hmm, it's really easy for me to just flip over the border. That's where I'm going to go. We're losing a lot of our best talent to the South. That is, uh, yeah, that is a tenuous situation at best. Carmi, we'll have to leave it there. Appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Rick. Appreciate it. That is Carmi Levy, technology expert and journalist. That is a big shortage. Hey, if you've, if you've got a son or daughter, if you've got a grandkid who's thinking about what am I going to do with the rest of my life, cybersecurity seems like a pretty good career path. That is for sure. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.